my name is Jeff Barrows. Uh, I'm going to be giving a talk. This is a 101 on human trafficking. I'll be defining human trafficking, talking about uh, what it is, uh, interface of medicine and trafficking, and how to identify briefly in 50 minutes. I'm going to be talking very fast, a lot of material to cover. I do want to first of all say that I have uploaded the entire handout from the PowerPoint onto the uh, Global Missions uh, website. So you can download that so you don't have to worry about getting uh, some, missing some information. All the slides are available for download. Or not the slides, but a PDF of the slides. Second, uh, I gave a talk on Thursday at 4 o'clock on how to develop a response protocol. It was really a, a level two talk. So if after going through this you want to learn how to respond and how to develop a response for the healthcare system, that talk is also uploaded onto the missions website and you'll look for it at uh, the 4 p.m. slot on Thursday. So um, with that, this is a talk I've given many times and, and I've actually given several times at this conference. Uh, we want to repeat this talk, I think, for a variety of reasons because we're obviously getting new people in uh, to the conference every year and uh, make sure that you're aware of what human trafficking is. And maybe it might be if we could get the lights off in the front, that would be great. Thank you. Might help with this. I'm going to speak fast. <laughs> I think I have 90 slides um, uh, and I want to leave a little bit of time for uh, questions. So with that, let me get started. Yeah, be good. This is my educational objectives right here. Um, by the time I conclude, my goal is that you will be able to discuss the extent of human trafficking in the United States, that you'll be able to identify the signs that a patient may be a victim of trafficking, and take concrete steps in preparation for encountering a victim of trafficking. I'll just briefly talk about the response protocol just in the last several slides. So, this is a general definition of human trafficking. I'll get into the legal definition in a second. But generally, human trafficking is any form of extreme exploitation of one human being by another for personal or financial gain. Personal meaning uh, if someone has a domestic servant and they're a slave in their home, they're not getting money from that person, but they're certainly getting work done for them. So, extreme exploitation is the key. Notice what is not included, and that is movement. Movement is not required for trafficking. We'll talk about the fact that movement is often involved, but in terms of the core definition of trafficking, it's extreme exploitation. Now, the legal definition is derived from this piece of legislation. It was passed by the U.S. Congress in 2000. It was called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the TVPA. And that was the first piece of legislation in this country that really addressed the issue of human trafficking. And in that definition, they were talking about criminal activity. So when Congress talks about a criminal activity, they define what it takes to prosecute somebody for that criminal activity. That's the context of the law. So to prosecute a trafficker, you have to prove one of these three things, force, fraud, or coercion, not all three, one of the three, force, fraud, or coercion, was utilized in any of these acts because trafficking involves a lot of different acts. It involves recruiting. It involves transporting. It involves keeping somebody overnight. It involves the actual exploitation. So in making the law, 
the U.S. government wanted to be very broad and, and get all of the people that are involved at any stage of the trafficking process. So if, they, if a prosecutor can prove forced fraud or coercion was used in any of these acts on a victim for sexual or labor exploitation, they can be prosecuted for human trafficking. So that's the definition legal-wise for human trafficking. The most common types of exploitation we see are sexual or labor exploitation here in the United States. Around the world, there are other types of trafficking, but I'm focusing here on the states. Now, there is one major exception to that definition, and that is when dealing with a minor defined as someone under the age of 18 involved in commercial sex. Because if you stop and you think about it, in order to prove the necessity to prove force, fraud, or coercion is the necessity to uh, go against someone's consent. But then Congress had to say, wait a minute, do we believe that a 15-year-old can really give consent to commercial sex? And they philosophically had to wrestle through that question. And they thought, only if we believe that a 15-year-old can give consent to sex, commercial sex, should we make it necessary to prove forced fraud or coercion? So they wrestled through that, and they came to the conclusion, no, that we do not believe, as a U.S. Congress, that a minor can give consent to commercial sex. Therefore, that removed any requirement to prove forced fraud or coercion. So you have a 16-year-old in commercial sex, in the eyes of the federal government, they are automatically a victim of sex trafficking, regardless of forced fraud or coercion. It does not matter. Now, that's the federal level. States have now been working through that process and that philosophical question for the last four or five, six years. And they're coming, uh, you know, to various points in that. And there are some people at the state level that say, you know, I think a 16-year-old can give consent to commercial sex. So we need to prove forced fraud or coercion. So that's a whole other matter. But federal government, no necessity. So we end up with the broad definition of human trafficking. And here in the States, as I said, two forms of exploitation, sexual exploitation, labor exploitation. So that means we have sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Now, where are we going to find sex trafficking? Where do you think? Commercial sex, obviously prostitution, stripping, and the production of pornography. And what we find is that among sex trafficking victims, these three are generally combined together. In fact, there are some estimates that the percentage of pornography that you find online, about 50%, is produced through sex trafficking victims. Labor trafficking can be found in a variety of scenarios. Uh, I mentioned domestic servants, any type of sweatshop, factory where you just need uh, untrained labor, um, janitorial jobs, construction sites, restaurants, uh, especially restaurants uh, that are... Uh, of an international nature, and they'll bring international workers in, hotels, uh, you name it, uh, labor trafficking can be involved. So you end up with two types of trafficking and two types of victims. International victims are victims that are brought in from another country into the United States. And the domestic victims are U.S. citizens. So we have... Two types of victims, and that means that we end up with four major types of trafficking here in the United States. We have international sex trafficking, so we're bringing in internationals for the purpose of commercial sex, uh, international labor trafficking, domestic sex trafficking, and domestic labor trafficking. And of those four, 
the most common is domestic sex trafficking, by far, in terms of our estimates. In fact, probably domestic minor sex trafficking. I'm going to briefly talk about international trafficking first. The smallest countries in Eastern Europe, Moldova has become a leading exporter of women and girls into the global sex trade. Proposing as buyers and wearing hidden shirt cameras, the crew set out to see how pervasive human trafficking has become here. It's real. Notice the gender of the trafficker? Female. And trend internationally is that uh, more and more uh, international traffickers are female. They're much better recruiters because girls and women trust other women more than they trust men. In terms of numbers, uh, the whole issue of numbers is, is somewhat controversial within the anti-trafficking realm. We don't have real good numbers. These come out of the State Department in their, one of their reports in 2005. I, rather than the exact number, I try to focus on the magnitude, like what, is it hundreds, is it thousands, is it tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, that, that type of thinking. So when we look at the number coming into the United States, the State Department estimated 14,500 to 17,500 back in, in 2005, so probably 10 to 20,000 coming into the U.S. every single year. Uh, 80% are female, and 50% are under the age of 18. So what are they coming in for? Sexual exploitation, the vast majority of them. When we look across uh, at how many are being moved worldwide across international border, then we get into the magnitude of hundreds of thousands. The State Department estimated six to 800,000 are being moved across international borders. And then finally, to the number of total people that are being trafficked across the world, it's millions. And that number, 21 million, is a pretty solid number. It comes out of the International Labor Organization uh, in a report they released in 2012. The ILO is part of the UN, and a lot of people feel that that's a, a pretty solid number. Um, so 21 million worldwide. So the vast majority of people that are being trafficked are being trafficked in their own country since only hundreds of thousands are being moved across international borders. This is actually a map uh, of that report released by the ILO, and you can see that they've divided North America and, and, and combined it with Western Europe and Australia 
developed country and estimated that we have one and a half million trafficking victims in those countries. And the way they came to this estimate is they, they developed a prevalence rate for every country in the world. And the United States, the prevalence rate is 1.5 victims per 1,000 population. So if you calculate our population starting at about 314 million, 1.5 victims in, per 1,000 ends up to be about 469,000 victims here in the United States. Half a million. Okay? So that means that every state must have at least thousands of victims of trafficking all around us. This is a map uh, from the Department of Justice in 2002, and I just show it because every one of those arrows represents a separate case of international trafficking that year, and you can see they're coming th predominantly th from three major areas of the world, Eastern Europe, Asia, and Central South America. Not coming from Africa, because Africa, the airline travel, if any, many of you have been overseas, you know that to get to Africa, you have to fly through Europe. Same way, to get back. So it's easier for the traffickers to take the girls from Africa to Western Europe. In general, the profile of an international trafficker is uh, very sophisticated. This is an Albanian trafficker being transported from one jail to another by Interpol. And you can see they're hiding their identity. They're wearing bulletproof vests and they're carrying machine guns because they're afraid of this Albanian crime gang attacking them in this transfer. So very sophisticated criminal networks, which really makes sense because in order to transport somebody across international borders, you have to have recruiters, you have to have transporters, you have to have the ability to produce illegal documents, and you have to have someone receiving them in the destination country. So in terms of generally, the traffickers overseas and internationally are very sophisticated criminal networks. That's very brief on international trafficking. Now I want to switch to domestic trafficking, trafficking in the United States here. That mainly consists of our teenagers running away from abusive homes. Um, they're being picked up by, on the street by traffickers and placed into commercial sex uh, every, every single day.
look at the number of miners uh, and, and get asked that, this, uh, the number of 100,000 is probably the most quoted figure, and this comes from Ernie Allen, who is the director for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And in July of 2010, uh, Ernie was giving testimony before a congressional caucus, and one of the congressmen asked him, what is your best estimate for the number of American youth that are being trafficked at any one time? And he said, at a minimum, 100,000. Fits the figure that I talked about before with 470,000 from the UN. So why is this such a huge problem? The answer is money, demand. The average trafficker on the street with one girl can make between 500 and $1,000 a night. Easy. Here in Louisville. $1,000 a night if they know what they're doing and they're very effective in getting the girl out there and getting her advertised. That's $365,000 a year, tax-free, because I guarantee they're not paying taxes. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of motivation. And we call it the demand side. Um, there are lots and lots of men. And by the way, women buy sex as well, not to the same degree as men do. But uh, there are a lot of people buying sex out there. But let's just say that that 100000 figure is high. Some people say it is. Uh, and it's just half that. Let's say it's just 50,000 U.S. girls under age 18 will be trafficked. Let's compare it to some other things. That means that if it's only 50,000, a teenage girl is still 20 times as likely to be trafficked as to be die in an automobile accident. And she is 50 times as likely to be trafficked as to commit suicide. So we're talking about a horrific problem. So where do the kids come from? Well, I briefly mentioned, they come out of abusive homes. We in medicine, if you interface at all with, uh, with kids and with troubled families, you know, hopefully, that the whole issue of child abuse is still rampant. Um, estimates are one in four girls are sexually abused in their lifetime. One in five boys. So you've got all of these Literally millions of kids that are being physically, sexually abused or neglected and abandoned from all socioeconomic strata. And when the abuse happens in the home and mom, for whatever reason, doesn't step in or is part of that abuse, then that girl has no place to go other than the street, which they think they're going to escape the abuse in the home and they actually end up getting into something that's a lot more worse. This is some data out of uh, Covenant House New York uh, this year, and they are working with kids that are trafficked, and so they asked them, after they got admitted to their facility, they asked them, who were your traffickers? 36% were immediate family. Mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. That's very important in the healthcare system because I, as I talk to audiences and, and we look and, and try and find these trafficked kids, when you see a girl brought in by the father or the mother, don't assume that they're not being trafficked. Over one-third are being trafficked by immediate family members. The next biggest group is boyfriends, then friends of the family. Smallest group, 9% is strangers. So most of these kids are being trafficked by family members or friends. So, what happens? The predisposing factors, if you have abuse and neglect, it creates low self-esteem. And then you have a poor and absent support system. And then the average age of being trafficked in the United States is probably somewhere around 14. 
normal 14-year-olds, come on, aren't all that bright. <laughs> I mean, they got hormones going through. They, they aren't ready to, to deal with what's out there in the world. We all know that as parents. And you take and add to that the low self-esteem and neglect that these kids have had, they're just literally ripe for the picking by these traffickers. We have two types of traffickers out there. One we call the gorilla trafficker, uh, and that is somebody who will initially trick a girl or rarely a guy into their home, and then once they have them in that home setting, they use nothing but brute force and threats to control that person and put them out into uh, prostitution. That's the gorillas. Uh, Fortunately, they're the less common. The more common type is what we call the finesse trafficker. That's the boyfriend. It's an older guy, 19, 20, 21 years old. And again, normal 14-year-olds go gaga over a good-looking 19-year-old. Imagine you've got a girl that's never been told she's beautiful. This is a smooth-talking guy. He knows what to say to these girls. He tells them they're beautiful, gives them gifts, pretends to be a boyfriend, for the first time showing attention to this girl, and traps them into a relationship. And then as the relationship starts, they increase more, start increasing more and more control. They buy them a cell phone. They want to keep track of them. Where are they going? Who they're seeing? Begin to limit their friends. Get them trapped into a relationship. And then finally, they get to, to a point where they separate them from whatever support system they've got. They may be in foster care or a group home. Um, They take him to a different location, and what that does is it forces the girl to be then completely reliant on the boyfriend for everything, and then they've got him right where they want him. And then finally you have the last stage, and that's really trauma bonding. Trauma bonding is the same thing. I don't know if you've heard of the Stockholm Syndrome, uh, and it is where someone gets bonded to a person. It's similar to intimate partner violence. That's why a woman can be well-educated, married to a guy that beats the crap out of her every three months and still stays with him. We ask, why does she do that? Well, she's trauma-bonded to him, and it happens with a combination of threats, force, and alternating love. I don't have time to get into it, but it's a very real issue. And so these girls get trauma-bonded to the trafficker, and they will literally do anything for him They also will increasingly have children with this girl, through this girl, so that they control her as well through their child. This is a quote, you promise a girl heaven and she'll follow you to hell.
things to point out. Did you catch the quote from the one trafficker? She has to be so love drunk on me. What a term for trauma bonding. He already admits, if it's about the money, it's not going to work out. It's about getting them trapped into this relationship. Matthew Tompkins, the guy on the audio tape, was finally arrested by the FBI in 2008. And when they arrested him, he had $700,000 cash. His net worth was $2.5 million. He had six homes and eight cars, eight luxury cars, all from trafficking young girls. Two and a half million dollars. That's how much money can be made. In fact, there's books out there that teach you how to do this. This one's on Amazon, Pimpology of the 48 Laws of the Game by Pimp and Kin. And believe it or not, it's rated four stars. The game is the terminology that's used for prostitution. The girls don't talk about, you you know, among themselves, are you still prostituting? They'll say, are you still in the game? Are you out of the game? Are you in the game? And there are rules of the game. And again, there's a certain amount that they have to bring in every night. Typically, it's between $500 and $1,000. Everything goes back to the trafficker. The girl's not allowed to even stop at McDonald's and buy a Coke. She can have $1,000 in her pocket. She cannot stop at McDonald's and buy a Coke. So everything goes back to the trafficker. Never talk to strangers other than customers. Never look another pimp trafficker in the eye because that's a sign you want to switch over to that trafficker. And they're never to look their own trafficker in the eye because it's a sign of defiance. Where are they sold? Well, used to be Craigslist, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with Craigslist. How many are familiar with Backpage? Very few are generally are. Backpage is very similar to uh, Craigslist. You can buy and sell literally anything on Backpage. Uh, Every major city has a Backpage listing. And this is the Backpage for um, Louisville. I just got it uh, Wednesday. Uh, The listings are very provocative. They all have uh, pictures associated with them. They'll give an age, and you'll notice all the ages will be over 18. So what the traffickers do, they're smart. They don't put 15 down there. They're smarter than that, unfortunately. So they have code words that they use. And they'll use words like Barbie, sweet, petite, new to town, fresh. All kind of signifying that maybe the girl, if you're interested in a younger girl, you might be able to find someone uh, through them. How old do you think this girl is? Anybody think she's over age 18? She's for sale tonight here in Louisville. I'd say she's 14 to 15. Just got her picture off the Internet just the other day. So, what's the role of healthcare professionals? It's a very, very vital role, finding and caring for these victims. Some limited studies have shown that uh, we in the healthcare profession are likely to encounter these victims. In fact, this is a study done in the U.K. where victims of international sex trafficking were brought into the U.K. and they were freed there and put into a rehabilitative facility. And they asked them, how many of you encountered a healthcare professional while you were being trafficked? And 28%, over one in four, answered in the affirmative, yeah. 
Well, how many were freed as a result of that interaction with healthcare? None of them. This is a study that was done in 2011 in Southern California. Again, international sex trafficking victims brought in from Central and South America into uh, South California for international sex trafficking and freed from that, brought into a rehabilitative facility, and they asked them, how many of you encountered a victim or encountered a healthcare professional while you were still being trafficked? 50% answered yes. How many were freed as a result of that encounter? None of them. And then lastly, this is a study that my organization, uh, Abolition International, sponsored, interviewing uh, victims across five different cities here in the United States, asking them the same question. Why you were being trafficked, how many of you encountered a healthcare professional? Almost 88%. How many were freed as a result of that encounter? Zero. So we've got a situation where we are regularly encountering these victims, but not recognizing them and not doing anything to help them. Where are we encountering them? The vast majority are in emergency rooms, okay? which you would think. A lot of them are getting abortions. Uh, so Planned Parenthood, family physicians, you can see a variety, urgent care, neighborhood clinics, uh, so it could be in a variety of settings, but we want to start focusing first on emergency rooms. This is a study that was done in 2012. And what they did is they surveyed the emergency room personnel of four large ERs in northeastern United States. They did not say which, which ERs they were, but they surveyed them on their knowledge of human trafficking. And you can see that 98% had never had any formal training. Well, now we're beginning to see why nobody was being freed as a result of that inter, uh, interaction with healthcare. Now, three quarters generally knew what trafficking was, but when it came down to really giving a good, solid definition, uh, one in five were confident in their ability to define it. And look at this, 6% had actually treated a victim of trafficking, but because they didn't know what to do with that patient, other than treating them medically, they sent them out the door. Now, whether human trafficking is a problem in their, in their particular ER, a little over one in four said yes. Most were unsure. Only 5% were confident in their ability to identify. 5%. And 7% were confident in their ability to actually treat properly a victim of trafficking. So a lot of training that needs to be done. So what this study did is they, after taking the survey, they gave them a 20-minute training, very brief, on trafficking. And after that, 90%. We're confident in their ability to define trafficking. And TIP, by the way, is trafficking in persons. Over half were confident in their ability to identify and in their ability to treat. And over 90% said the session was useful. So that's what we're going to talk about now. Hopefully, you all have already talked about the definition, right? Extreme exploitation of one human being for another, for personal or financial gain. So how do you identify and treat victims of trafficking? Well... I wish that it was as easy as coming in and having a, a T-shirt on, right? Wouldn't that be great? I'm a victim of trafficking, or maybe a T on the forehead. Uh, we do it, I wouldn't need to be here. But really, the way to look at this is it's almost as if we're going after a victim that's drowning. What's happening in a, a situation with drowning? The person is submerged. They're invisible. They're hard to see. You've got to reach down to them, and that's really what we're doing when we're looking for victims of trafficking, because they're going to be hidden all around us. They're not going to pop out. They're not going to self-identify like victims of sexual assault, for instance. 
So we have to be looking for them and going after them. Now, this is a mnemonic that was developed by some uh, researchers in Texas, and I really like it, H-E-A-R, here. And the H stands for human trafficking considered. I think the biggest problem that we have in healthcare is that we, we are encountering these victims, but because we don't have a category for this in our minds, when we see this, we think something strange is going on. And we walk away from that encounter. We know it's not intimate partner violence. And it just doesn't feel right. And we just kind of think, ah, I, don't know. I don't know what's happening there, but it just doesn't feel right. And the reason is we don't have a category. So now, hopefully, I've created that category in your mind that this is happening all around us. So the H is when weird things and you're getting weird vibes begin to consider human trafficking. Now, there are three categories in general for indicators, okay? Categories of control, categories of inconsistencies, and then the physical findings that you might see on examination, okay? So what do I mean? Categories of control. Almost without fail, these victims are accompanied by somebody who is, uh, is very controlling. That person may be the husband, it may be the father. It may be the mother. It may be the boyfriend. I've already talked about over one and third are, are trafficked by immediate family members. But there, somebody else is with them that seems controlling. And so they're going to be answering the questions instead of the patient. I used to have this happen all the time. My reaction was getting mad. Why, why aren't you letting the patient answer the question? It's weird. Now, I want you to think, and it may not always be, but begin to say, wait a minute, what's going on? What's the dynamic here? Why is this person answering the questions when I'm directing them to the patient? Um, look at body language. That's the other indicator. The study out of Southern California, when the women were, ta- were interviewed about their encounter with healthcare, some of them were very, very frustrated because in that encounter, they were trying to speak out and literally yell to the healthcare professional through their body language, I can't stand this man who's with me. They would pull away. They would get as far away as they could sitting on the exam table. They would look at them like this. They knew they couldn't verbally say anything because the trafficker might beat them, but they could certainly use their body language. And in spite of that, it was totally missed. So watch body language. So they may be scared, nervous, or submissive. They may exhibit fear or anger with the person accompanying them. And it, it may look like a marital fight or a fight between boyfriend and girlfriend. Think about other possibilities. Um, and again, just because you, can, you know that it's a family member does not mean that they're not being trafficked. What about the, the patient? They're, they're, they're not looking at you at all. They're always looking down at the floor. These patients have a lot of shame because of what's happening to them, and they can't help but exhibit that shame, especially in settings where somebody with authority, like a physician or nurse. So look at their, their, their body language in terms of shame as well. This is something that the front, people at the front desk are going to see. Not, they're not in control of their ID documents. Obviously, if they're international, um, they're not going to be in control of money. You may not see that back there in the clinic setting if you're the physician, but this is for the front desk. So what about inconsistencies? Is there something unusual about the history? Um, 
Here's a big one. Domestic sex trafficking, the girls are always being moved around. The girl I showed the picture, by the end of this weekend, she's going to be out of Louisville. She may be out of Kentucky. They're moved around on circuits. So after a period of time, these kids stop keeping track of where they are. So if you happen to be in the ER and a, a girl looks up and says, by the way, what city am I in? That should set off alarm bells. And the first thing you should think about is trafficking. So they may not know where they are, even though they're oriented. They may not know that what their address is. That's something really weird. They may make up, well, we just moved. Well, that's a nice, easy story to make up. They may appear to be lying about our age. Trauma affects timeline. I don't have time to go into that, but they're going to be a very poor historian if they've been recently traumatized, and, and, and so they lose track of time. And so you're going to think that they're lying. They may be lying, but the, the end result is the story is going to be mixed up, uh, and, and just you're going to say the terrible historian. Instead of getting frustrated, ask the next question. Is there a reason they're a poor historian? History keeps changing. Some other inconsistencies, um, the pieces don't fit together. I'm going to give you an example of that in a minute. You just get the feeling you're not getting the whole story. And this is, comes with experience in medicine. You just walk away and say, Something, something's just not right. Late presentation. You'll never see an unruptured appendix in these girls. Why? The trafficker always waits until the last minute to bring these people in, and they're near death. And we in healthcare get frustrated because we, why, we think, why did you wait so long? Again, instead of getting frustrated, we ought to think, is there a reason that they've been held back from coming in, even though they've been having pain for two months, severe pain, and normally a, a person would have presented before that time. So let's talk about some of this. This, unfortunately, is a true story. That's not Jill. I wouldn't put her picture up there. But she was brought to the ER at age 16 with extensive vaginal bleeding, accompanied by her brother, whose name was Bruce. And Bruce says, you know, our parents were killed a couple of years ago in a tragic automobile accident. And ever since that time, my sister Jill has been suffering from schizophrenia. She has all kinds of delusions that people are controlling her. You look at Jill, she stares off into space. Not completely there. Doesn't answer your questions. So you think, okay, well, maybe she's got schizophrenia. You do a physical exam. Well, you find that there's a scar on her neck and on her wrists and her ankles. She's got severe anemia, positive HCG. For the non-medical people, that's a positive pregnancy test. An enlarged uterus. And when you do a pelvic exam, you find that her anterior cervix has been traumatized like someone has tried to do an abortion, some type of manipulation of that cervix. Now, this ER... Southern California, said there's been an attempted abortion with routine products of conception. She's got severe anemia. They took her to the OR. They did a curatage. They gave her blood, kept her in the hospital overnight, and sent her home. The reality is that Jill ran from home at age 14 to escape abuse. Uh, Bruce, obviously, is her trafficker. He's been using her to provide sexual services to clients in his basement for the past two years. There's a reason for the scar on the neck. Is she, she was hung, actually hung, until she agreed to work as a prostitute. Natanali, that's another uh, case example. This actually is a picture of Natanali. I'll tell you why I'm showing it in a minute. But let's say she presents to your ER as a 19-year-old. 
and she's presenting with her infant daughter. Accompanied by the baby's father. The, father, the infant is being seen because of high fever. Father does all the talking. This is very subtle. She's quiet, submissive, appears almost fearful. You notice she's got a tattoo on the upper back that matches the name of the father. Not all that odd, but a little different. But her demeanor is not normal. And that's probably all you're going to get. Just her body language is not what you would expect with a mother with an infant with a high fever. A lot of fear instead of concern. What's the reality? Well, this is Natanali Marie Perez. She's been missing from Florida since June 1st of 2012. And law enforcement feel that she was kidnapped actually by a sex trafficking ring. She's still missing. So she might show up in your ER. That's why I show her picture. She could well be pregnant and have a child by now. Last, Maria, 28-year-old Latino woman, presents with her two-year-old son, accompanied by a man who claims to be the father. Son presents with a history of high fever and rash for three days. Not all that unusual until you look at that child and you suspect measles. That's a little odd. don't see much measles these days. So the first question in your mind is, well, how did this child get measles? Didn't they get the MMR? So you ask the mother. No, she's not able to answer that question. Neither is the man, and he's very controlling. He's uh, wanting to answer all the questions. You look at the body language of Maria, and she's very fearful of the father. Again, subtle signs. What's the reality? Well, Maria was brought to this country from Honduras in 2008. She's been working as a domestic servant in the man's home. Uh, he is married, but still has been raping her repeatedly. And this is, in fact, their child together. But she is a victim of international domestic labor, or international labor trafficking. So, what are some other things to look for? That's the kind of scenarios you might see briefly in the uh, healthcare setting. You want to look for in domestic trafficking, hotel room key cards, numerous school absences, false IDs, large amounts of cash, because these girls at the end of the night will come home with about $500 to $1,000 in cash. That's a little odd. Uh, they're disappearing for blocks of time, restricted communication. They, they're just not telling the whole story to you. Uh, I, I talk to teachers at times and, and say, you know, all of a sudden if they show up and they've got pagers or cell phones where they didn't have them before, then that should make them very suspicious. So, what do you do? You've got considered and a lot of indicators. You want to examine them. Obviously, you have to separate them from that potential trafficker, even if they are uh, um, a family member. If you're suspicious, you've got to separate them. Uh, you look for unusual infections, just like the example with uh, Maria. Uh, the unusual diseases that normally we don't see anymore because of immunizations. Um, you look for TB, malnutrition, poor uh, hygiene, uh, evidence of neglected health which just doesn't match, and especially poor dental hygiene. Then trauma. Trauma is another big component to this. Uh, the traffickers generally do not beat these girls around the face. Uh, the Johns, the men who buy sex might, but um, they typically beat them on the buttocks, the back of the legs, and the back so that uh, they aren't as visible. Um, but they'll also have genital bruising. Burns, a lot of times, are used in the trauma, so they'll have scars from old or recent burns and old or recent cuts. Uh, look for bones that are broken that haven't been properly repaired. Uh, new fractures, unusual scars, obviously multiple STIs. When I used to see, I'm an OBGYN, when I used to see patients with three or four uh, multiple uh, sexual transmitted infections, my first thought was promiscuity. That was before I learned about trafficking. Now we want to think commercial sex. 
Uh, chronic PID is an, an issue where they get salpingitis and a lot of pelvic pain. Um, another big uh, indicator is and domestic is tattooing. Almost all of these girls will have the name of their uh, trafficker tra- uh, tattooed onto their upper back. Uh, the guy in the audio tape, his street name was Knowledge. All of his girls and women had knowledge tattooed somewhere on them. Uh, you see something like this, Daddy's Little Bitch. Uh, Daddy is a term that they use for the trafficker. Again, uh, red flashing lights ought to go off. So substance use and abuse is decreasing, but still may be there. Extreme weight loss, need for frequent pregnancy tests. This is another uh, tattoo. You can't read it. It's Lalo's property. So a lot of times the tattoo will have the word property on it, and that's the purpose of the tattoo is to let the girl know that you belong to me. You are literally my property. So what do you do? Next, you want to ask some questions. You have to have someone spend time with that patient, uh, developing a a relationship of rapport and trust with them. Uh, I recommend getting someone, if you're in a hospital setting, in the social work department. Uh, You need to obviously provide translation as necessary, but develop trust with that, that patient so that they can tell you who they or what they're truly going through. Um, there's a lot of times the temptation to say, we'll protect you, but make sure you only make that promise if you truly can, especially if you're dealing with a very sophisticated international criminal network. And then there are questions to ask. These are the international questions. Can you leave your work or job situation if you want? When you're not working, can you come and go as you please? Have you been threatened with harm if you try and quit? Has anyone threatened your family? Because a lot of times back home, they'll have uh, traffickers uh, that are back home in their home country that will be threatening their family. What are your working or living conditions like? Where do you eat and sleep? Do you have to ask permission to eat, sleep, or go to the bathroom? And is there a lock on your door or window? Notice none of these questions are, are you being trafficked, because they don't know that term. It's getting to the actual living and working situation. Now, domestic, for domestic sex trafficking victims, we have a whole different set because, again, they're trauma-bonded. They're not held in physical bonds like international victims. They're held in psychological bonds. So we want to know, have you been asked to have sex with multiple men each night? Do you have to meet a quota of money? Has someone forced you to form, perform uh, sexually before a camera? Has anyone taken sexually suggestive photos to post on the Internet, like on Backpage or similar websites? Has anyone ever forced you to engage in, in sexual acts with friends or business associates? That gets to the actual act of prostitution. So what do you do? You have to respond and report. And this is where it gets really tricky, and it's important to have a protocol. And as I mentioned, I, I did a workshop Thursday at 4 o'clock on how to put together a protocol, and the, uh, the uh, handout is available for download on the website uh, you have to look ahead of time and make some preparations in advance. Not all local law enforcement have been trained, so you don't want to think that you can just pick up the phone, call the police, I got this victim of trafficking, and expect that, that policeman to understand what trafficking is. They may or may not know what that is. So there's a hotline number that you can call. Uh, it's the uh, Polaris Project hotline number, 888-3737888. And again, this is on a handout that you can download from the website on this particular track. That will tell you the local resources that are available. Um, You want to contact uh, Homeland Security uh, to find out about law enforcement that has been trained on trafficking at the state and federal level. And they have a database that will tell you that. Uh, You need, in terms of developing this protocol, you need to get a champion in in your staff that interfaces with all the agencies that you need to be working with with these victims. And that includes law enforcement, child protective services, service providers, social service 
uh, networks that are in your area on how, how they can help intervene and help take care of that victim once you get them out of the situation. And you put all this together uh, into uh, a protocol. You also want to develop a list of local trafficking indicators because trafficking in New York is very different than trafficking in California and here in Louisville. Uh, I've given some general indicators, but it, it varies across the country depending on, on the sophistication of the international networks and that type of thing. So local law enforcement, if they're trained on trafficking, will know what's happening on the ground. So you want to connect with them, get local uh, trafficking indicators, and then how to separate your, the victim from the trafficker, who's going to be the designated interviewer, and who's going to provide interpreting services. Put that all together into a protocol, and then you want to train your staff on trafficking and the protocol itself. So that's very brief. I've got a couple of minutes. I do want to point out a couple of resources. One is a group of uh, individuals and I have put together, I believe, 11 uh, educational modules on the CMDA website. It's cmda.org uh, forward slash TIP. I recommend going to there. If you go through all those modules, you'll learn everything pretty much you need to know about trafficking. And this is my organization as well, abolitioninternational.org forward slash medical. There's all sorts of resources that are available on that. So uh, with that, I will quickly stop and try and answer any questions. Yes? Is, is the numbers increasing at this point in time? We don't think they're decreasing at all, and there's some evidence they might be with the Internet. Yes, in the back. Uh, the question is, how do, how do I recommend separating? In the healthcare setting, we've got a lot of different ways. We can just say the protocol for this, our particular hospital or clinic is we will do a pelvic examination without the family in there. And, uh, you know, and they may say, I'm the husband. It's fine. You're the husband. But this is our protocol. We'll, we'll have you wait out in the waiting room. If they begin to really fight that and they say, I want to be in there, then that increases my suspicions practice as an OBGYN for 20 years, I rarely ever saw a husband that was not glad to go out into the waiting room. <laughs> okay? So you got a, a guy that's insisting on being in the room, then that should send up your, your suspicions. Yes, sir? Very much involved. They need to be, they need to be involved in, in putting together the protocol and, and, and how to intervene and how to establish internal security before you get police or law enforcement there to establish external. So, yes, they're very involved. How long does it take, like, once you examine them and then they either say that, you know, answer these questions yes, or you're pretty sure that they're trafficked? By the time you follow all the protocol for this, does that patient leave before you're able to get someone in there to help uh, you got a whole different possibilities. Um, it, it's actually easier to, in, to get the patient to agree to intervene with international victims, but it's more dangerous because of the, the potential for an international trafficking ring. Trauma bonding is much more difficult. And, in fact, the FBI have trained special agents to try and turn these girls, the girls that have been identified, and you really know they're being trafficked, but they're so trauma bonded to their trafficker that they don't want to leave them. 
And they're only successful about half the time in getting the girls to turn. So depending on the situation, if it's an international victim that's being held by physical control, they may, once they realize that they can trust you and you can understand, they may jump right away and say, please help me, I need help right away, versus the domestic, which is trauma bonded, and they may say, what are you talking about? I love this guy, he loves me, yeah, he beats me up, and yeah, he makes me go out and do this, but I want to stay with him. So it's a broad range. Yes? Very little is known about boys uh, that, are, uh, that are out there, and most of them are actually acting as independent agents. They're not being trafficked by another individual. They're able, uh, in generally, to keep themselves away from being under the control of others. So they're out there. They're, they're selling sex to both men and to women, and very much in need of services, but not quite to the degree that the girls are. All right, I'm out of time. Um, I'm glad to stay up here uh, for anybody. I do want to say one thing that uh, I am now in, in the process of working through and helping uh, hospitals, ERs, develop protocols. So if you would like me to do that, uh, I do that through my work with Abolition International. Um, be glad to do that and get you my contact information. It's jeff at abolitioninternational.org, but I, got, I can tell you that later. So thank you very much.